0: When looking at this and determining whether this is discoverable, I think justice would deem a necessary tender. Therefore, uh, I'm going to grant the defendant's motions the subject to your...
1: Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 37. In the Interest of Justice, Motion Granted,
2: The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department.
1: Hi, y'all before we get started with the hearing update i wanted to let you know that i'm going to chicago in early october to be a guest on the Popo report podcast you may remember paul cialino was a special guest on season one episode six snitch parade and if you haven't listened to it you really should because paul gave us the lowdown on jailhouse informants like nobody else could He's been a supporter of Jamie's innocence for years, and we are super excited to be invited on the show. We've set it up to where Jamie can call in, too, so it's going to be really cool. Paul's co-host is Lupe Wolf Aguirre, a former Chicago police officer, now attorney, And the show not only features corruption in Chicago and Illinois, but they also discuss national and international cases. And in true Cialino style, they are raw, hilarious, and unapologetic. So download the Popo Report on your favorite podcast app
3: today
1: and give it a listen. I promise you won't be disappointed.
3: On September 8th, Judge Escapa granted the motion for Jamie's attorney to receive the almost 9,000 documents that were withheld from him. In this episode, we bring you directly into the courtroom. We'll discuss the arguments from both the defense and the state, and hopefully give you a feel of what it was like in the courtroom during the hearing. Let's begin with Jamie's personal thoughts on his experience from that day.
1: First of all, tell me what the, what the trip was like. There was a lot of questions about your shackles. Did you have them on the whole time off like the ride and then all the way back?
4: Yeah, they put them on. You know, they put the shackles in the, uh, handcuffs and stuff on before we even leave the institution it's weird right because it'll feel like hours later after they take the shackles off it'll feel like you still got them on you still feel them clamped around your ankle they leave them on you and they'll never come off until you get back to the institution so if you're trying to eat your lunch or you're trying to drink something you have to do it all on the way back I was trying to drink out of a bottle of water and you can only reach up so far, so it's like you have to try to balance the bottle <laughs> on your fingertip, and uh, it kind of slipped, you know, so it, it spilled a bunch of water down the
1: front of my shirt, fell on the floor, and I'd to get down on my knees to pick it back up. And... and a really simple solution for that would be for them to give you a straw.
4: <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. long ride. That's a long time to have to... To have to do that. Now, when you yeah. came, when you came into court and then when they had a recess, you left, they had to put you back in the room. Is that, do they always do that?
4: No, I I've, I think it's really just up to the, uh, the IDOC officers because I've been to court before and when they've had a recess, we've just sat in the courtroom. The judge leaves and we've just sat in the courtroom and I thought, my attorney's right there at the table, or I've, I've talked to my family who might be in the courtroom or, or whatnot, but I think it just really depends on who the uh, the officers are that take you from IDOC. It's up to them, really.
1: On your shackles, again, Are there were there ever times where they took them off during court, or they always leave them No. Off?
4: Okay. Yeah, they always leave them on. They'll never
1: take them off. So, what were you thinking... When you came in, could you hear us out there before you came in?
4: No. I, I couldn't hear anybody. One of the officers went out, looked around the corner, and said that the courtroom was full of people. But um, I couldn't hear anybody. It was weird, though, when I walked in the courtroom that first time and I got a look at everybody that was sitting there, I, I felt like I could actually feel the energy in the room. I could actually
1: feel it. That's really cool. You said before you didn't like everybody looking at you. What did you, did everybody look up at you? Was that weird?
4: Again. Yeah, everybody was looking at me. You know, I, I could feel that positive energy in that, I think I could feel that positive vibe that was in the, in that room. It was the first time in 22 years that everybody was there for
1: me. Or are you saying that somebody, like the post-conviction or, or the other hearings that we've had there that you've had people there were people uh there like a bill little's family and stuff no i don't know if there was people from Bill Little's family there but i
4: think a couple of times there were just maybe people that were hanging around the courthouse that may have been waiting for other court hearings or whatever that were just sitting there people that we didn't know who they were i don't think they were there for me oh i see Yeah, it was
1: funny because we were all smushed in there. They said we couldn't stand up and we couldn't sit on the, on the floor, which any of us were happy to do. So everybody just kind of pulled together and, and scooched together. I didn't know that. Yeah, they said, they said we couldn't do either of those two things. So there were literally people sitting in cracks of seats. You know how those seats
4: are. Well, I guess I wasn't the only one that was uncomfortable.
1: In there then. Oh, was good. I know we weren't as uncomfortable as you were in there, for sure. So you felt a positive vibe when you walked in. Were you, I mean, do you have any thoughts that you want to share? I, it was good to see your kids, I know. And Jessica, you hadn't seen her in a very long time. I know that was, uh, that was good, huh? You
4: know, I mean, it, it just, it was just a good, it was just a good moment. It was good to see my kids and, and see my sister Robin and, and uh, see, uh, you know, so many people that were hoping that we would get something positive. I mean, that's the first positive ruling we've gotten in 22 years. So it was a good moment. And I was glad that everybody was there to share it with them.
1: What were you thinking during the arguments? Uh, what did you think? That was the first time that you heard Lauren argue your case What do you think about that? with her as well um she had an answer for everything you wouldn't even remember the case law that she was citing because she was so plain language yeah. making an ethical argument yeah. I loved it when he was trying to say that leads were not discoverable and she said your honor I have leads in every case that I have I always have leads I don't know I I don't even know what he's talking about Something like that. I was like, that is the funniest damn thing.
4: years to rest uh, when she was in there arguing. I can say that for
1: sure. Yeah, I have a whole new level of comfort as well. It's almost like you feel like, you know, she's got this. And that's that's a great feeling because there has been a lot of fear there. I think they co-counsel a lot on cases so they they seem to make a really good team
4: um, yeah right 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 good team good teamwork
1: that's great that's that's great was there a point where you knew that he was going to rule in your favor did the guys think when you got back were they i mean were you talking to anybody about it are you thinking about where you're headed from here as far as the case goes you have anything to say to your supporters
4: yeah i i'm man i'm just unbelievably grateful and thankful for everyone that showed up for everyone that has been sending me messages and for uh, the last few days and, and everyone that has tuned in to the, to the podcast and stayed up to uh, date with what's going on what we have going on and all i can say is you know you just don't give up on us yet the best
2: Most of our listeners already know this past Wednesday, September 8th, Jamie had a hearing in Bloomington. Leslie and Tam attended this hearing and it was good news for Jamie as we know it's the first time in over 10 years that he he was in an in-person hearing. So Tam, why don't you start with the recap and tell us a little bit about how that went.
1: Well, first we wanted to start off with how packed the courthouse was. It was really, really amazing. And we wanted to thank everyone that showed up because it's a wonderful thing. And it really does matter when people show up. So all of the seats were full and more because we knew that we had people still coming in. And as I told Ray on the phone, just to use as an example, if you have like, a row of six seats. Everybody was smooshing together and like being on half seats. So, you know, you might have 10 people in in six seats because all the seats were just kind of chained together. And it was hysterical because we had asked the bailiff, Jessica Snow had asked the bailiff, can we stand up? Because nobody wanted to lose their seat, but that I was willing to stand up, of course, if that meant somebody else could come in. But I was like, I'm not losing my not losing my seat, so couldn't stand up, couldn't sit on the floor. But they said as long as you're in the seats, that we could, you know, sit in the seat. So we were all like smooshing up together. We were like, well, what do they think about people sitting in laps? And the bailiff was like, well, as long as you're sitting in a seat, then that's then that's fine. It was also noted that there were like 13 police officers standing in the hallway outside the courtroom, which was. That was really weird. Was that weird, Leslie?
3: Yeah, it was really weird. And I was thinking, I wonder if they think his sons are coming here or something. <laughs> like, and if we're there, everyone's going to start. I don't know. Maybe if the judge ruled against us and people could have been upset, maybe that was what that was about. Well, I mean, I, I just don't understand
1: that. He's never had a good ruling. So,
3: <laughs> you know, what
1: we we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, but, but, but he's
3: never had this much like recruitment for court. So in his post conviction hearing that was
1: a it was a actually a bigger room and it was also packed. I mean yeah. there were a ton of people there. So people have been supporting him for a long time. Uh one thing though is that they kept giving positive feedback to people that knew them. They were asking if people were there for the snow thing. After it was done, people were asking, you know, how it went and they were they were kind of it, excited about it, which was cool. We had Christine Lovelace there. We've had her on the podcast before. That was super cool. Alan Beeman, who was also a victim of Charles Renards state's attorney's office, was there. And his wife, Gretchen. Uh, we had a- Andy, the juror, showed up. We had a journalist drive up from St. Louis who wants to help with the case. Wendy from the Ken Nixon case. He was just recently set free. He was wrongfully convicted. Jamie's daughter and their mother and some lifelong friends of Jamie's who have been supporters for a long time. Leslie actually passed around a roster. I felt like I was in school.
3: Everybody signed your name. It was like (laughs) a last minute thought, (laughs) like a spur of the moment thing. And I'm really glad I I'm really glad Scott came up to me and asked for his contact information because that legal pad I had in my backpack, I've been just carrying around in my car and like to school, like, you know, random places It had like coffee stains all over it and stuff. And Scott signed... The top page of this contact information that had you know the the coffee stains on it, and then you know I passed down the second page, not even thinking I was gonna mail it to Jamie, so you know it was really nice that he had a clean sheet of paper that would make it through the mail room. so thank you, Scott,
1: yeah, and thanks for everybody that signed the sheet I, It was a really cool last minute idea.
2: Was there anybody at all in the courtroom that was in opposition to Jamie? No,
3: there was one person.
2: Well, Danny Hartley supports Jamie now.
3: No, I'm talking about Bradley Rigdon. It's just literally one person. Oh. Yeah, well, he doesn't.
2: He doesn't count. <laughs> so it's fair to say that every single person that came to see this hearing was in support of Jamie.
1: Yeah, on both sides, Jamie was shackled the whole time. Which, if you saw the panograph, you can see where he's kind of. Well, I guess you can see the chains there, but, and in the video also, when he's waving, he can't put his arms up. And uh, yeah, I
3: think we got a comment that said, what's up with this karate chop movement? And that, it's because that was a wave. Like that was as much as he could wave.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's very, it's actually painful to be shackled that way. And he is shackled from the time that he leaves Stateville. To the time that he goes back to Stateville. So that's hours and hours and hours of being in those shackles, not being able to move his arms properly. So writs are really difficult for inmates. And, but it's, it was so important for him to be there. He, you know, we wanted to be there, but those are the types of things that they have to go through to be able to attend their own hearing it's uh it's really
2: sad i was a little no. surprised to see that too because i know different courts and different states have you know their own rules but i attended an evidentiary hearing in mississippi for a death row inmate and there was no shackles and there was only two police officers in the entire courthouse so to see the police presence and the shackles the entire time i thought was a little extreme and it's just showing you what's, what jamie really has to go through as you said
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But he was, you know, he's tired, but everybody knows how it turned out. So it was a really good day for him. Really good day for him. So it started off with Lauren and she was just saying it's a, this is a simple request. They have 11 PDF files that Jamie is entitled to him per the Illinois Supreme Court discovery rules. And she even said in her motion, that could have just been emailed to me. She stated that she believes, uh, to the best of her knowledge, that maybe they were tendered pre-trial, but there's no way to know that because his trial attorneys are, are no longer available. But they're obligated to turn them over now. In 2007, only 900 pages were released. And then, of course, in 2016, they had the subpoena for the for the ISP, the Illinois State Police and the Bloomington Police Department related to the forensics motion. She said that, you know, and then Tara had to go through over a period of time, couldn't share any of that information with them, uh, with anyone, in fact, but had taken notes on everything that she found. And that's when they discovered all of this information. And that was with the 2016 subpoena, and this becomes important later in the argument when the judge starts asking questions. But Lauren made it clear that she wasn't seeking anything new, which is important in a legal sense because she's not asking for new evidence or new discovery. And she also said that it was a uniquely unburdensome claim because It's all electronic. It's all in 11 PDF files. And it's not something that everybody has to dig up. Like they're always telling us with FOIA in the beginning, Ray, this is a burden. This is a burden. This is a burden. It's too much stuff. It wasn't because it's all, it's all there. At that time or somewhere around there, the judge was asked, asked Laura if she would admit that there were duplicates because the state had brought up as we know we discussed in the previous episodes on this matter that they were talking about if it was duplicates and we were like well you know it doesn't even matter but she, you know she said she doesn't know maybe but there's no law against that there's n- there's no issue if they're duplicate items she's basically like well who cares you know if they're duplicates let me see them to see if they're duplicates or not i, I can tell she- you if i see them
3: I think she said, I don't believe there's any law against tendering duplicates.
1: Right. Lauren stated she had an ethical obligation as a defense attorney to see the documents because she didn't have any access to them and how she kept harping on how can I defend my client if I don't even know what's in those documents?
2: It seems like one of the arguments was that the, and it was in the, the articles, too, in the papers was that this evidence was somehow tied to Jamie's previous attorneys. How does that law work as an argument for the state to say, no, that these these are tendered to the, the past attorneys, which we you know, I believe one is dead and one went to jail. So what is what are the laws regarding that?
1: Her argument was that she was she didn't have access to them because. Uh, one went to prison and says he doesn't have anything anymore and the
2: other is deceased. So the state's so, saying the obligation is for those attorneys to turn it over to Lauren.
1: And that is usually the case. You, okay. you would you would go to
2: their prior attorneys. Right. Just to make um, it clear why that why that information isn't accessible now, it's because those attorneys are not available. Exactly. Right. And okay. and that was
1: her that was her Argument. She also stated that the the missing documents were related to the credibility of the of the witnesses, um, and also related to the DNA motion because the alternative suspects could be DNA tested or their names might already be in CODIS, and the DNA from the crime scene could be tested against them. And it was really it was a really important point. Because the state kept saying this doesn't relate to the DNA motion. This doesn't relate to the, you know, what you're asking for has nothing to do with the forensics motion. And she's like, well, it does because there's alternative suspects in there.
3: The other thing that was important was she said, and if there's not already DNA or their fingerprints in CODIS, I will now have their names unredacted and I can order their DNA.
1: Exactly. Because alternative suspects could also be DNA tested and then that could be run.
3: Right. And then um, another point that she said that I just thought was really important was she had just a more broad question, just asking everybody, how will all this material weigh on his innocence? So, you know, it was important that um, not only is it all these logistical issues, but he's innocent (laughs) and it's also more than that.
1: I loved that. I I thought that she made a brilliant argument and she had an answer for everything. And although the state admitted later on that we'll talk about that he hasn't really analyzed everything, even if he had, I think she would have won anyways, just because I think that she was so well prepared and obviously she should have access to discovery that sure. should have been turned over
3: right, and the other thing I wanted to let everybody know who wasn't there to get like a feeling of how this was was when Lauren first walked in, Bradley Rigdon was already sitting there at the state's desk, and then she was like, "Hi, how are you?" and they were like asking about like a mo like a paperwork and stuff like that, and they were very cordial, but then, as soon as the judge asked her to do her opening remarks, she just stood up and she was very strong and powerful and authoritative and dramatic when it needed to be. And the same thing with the state. He stood up and he was just as dramatic, even more so. And it really was like an episode of long Order. <laughs> so for people thinking that, I, you know, I thought I almost didn't go because I thought that it wasn't going to, the judge wasn't going to rule and it might have been postponed and it was going to just be like not even that significant. But it was like, just like you see on TV. I love her
1: style. She is cutting and you, you, you look at Lauren and she's just this petite, cute with dimples, even tiny thing. But she is, she is amazing. Here's what I like about her. She's unapologetic. Right. Um, There was a, there was a time when I think Rigdon said, oh, what was it that he said when he was talking about the lead sheets and this is a this is a good lead into this because I wanted Ray to talk about it a little bit. So when he said the lead sheets, I'm paraphrasing this and I might get it a little bit wrong, but you'll get my point. I think he was saying there is case law, they're not discoverable, the lead sheets aren't discoverable.
3: He was saying that all the suspects were not relative. That was right, the, but he yes. was talking
1: about the lead sheets he, and he exactly. was saying that they he was saying that they're not discoverable. And she said, when I went back to her, she said, um, I, I, I have no idea what he's talking about, judge. I get lead sheets all the time in all my cases. And I have no idea what that even means, basically, is what she was saying. There's nothing against that. We have to have lead sheets to determine alternative suspects and what people are saying. And we also have to have lead sheets to know you have you have to have lead sheets. If, If someone said something against Jamie, then he has to have everything that's been said against him as a defendant. And when she came back like that, it was not with all due respect to Mr. Rigdon. It was that's not true. I get them all the time. I don't know what he's talking about. And uh I just loved her style that way. She doesn't mince words and she's unapologetic. So that, and she uses very plain language, I think, which helps a lot. Of course, she can cite any case law that she wants to and knows the law. But when you get somebody in there that's talking about ethics and using plain language and they have the law to back them up, I think that's so effective in a courtroom, not only for the attendees, but for the judge and a jury.
3: And let's also mention she had co-counsel with her. With her, So what was his name, Tim?
1: That's Carl Leonard, and he is co-counsel on this case as well. We've and heard a little he's bit like from him.
3: A really classy, professional guy. He kind of reminds me of like, a doctor that's (laughs) like his whole demeanor and everything like that is how I, I would expect my doctor to greet me like smiling, but like super professional and like empathetic and like he's there to help you.
1: So Carl is the one who successfully got DNA testing for Donnie Whalen in McLean County courts before a McLean County judge. So we're really excited to have him as co-counsel. Um, he just came on board a few weeks ago. So we're, we're really, really excited about his representation at this time. The other issue with Lauren is that she moves, you know, she moves fast. And if you were listening to these past hearings, these past Zoom hearings, you know that, or, you know, judge, Judge Escapa, how many days will you need to review this? And state is like 90. And Lauren, how long will it take for your response? She's like a week. So every time it went to them, they needed, you know, these months. And every time it came to her, she was like, well, yeah, I'll just need like a week, judge or two, you right. know, depending and on what it is.
3: The other thing for people who weren't there is both of these lawyers are young. Um, I think they're in their thirties and they both look like they came out of a magazine. You know, they were wearing trendy, like sleek attorney attire, like nice shoes, um, nice hair, both of them really nice hair. Lauren even has like really trendy glasses right now that, you know, like the the bigger frames you know, and they're super cute because it makes her face look even smaller behind them, a complete breath of fresh air. And they just present, really well and everything about them we like even what they were wearing
1: (laughs) yeah so that was starting the discussion about the lead sheets and Ray when he was talking about the lead sheets um, and as we discussed I believe that he was talking about leads as in ISP leads sheets And Lauren was talking about LEADS as in the tips and the LEAD sheets that were given to Bloomington Police Department. Ray, can you just recap that distinction? Because I think you did it much better than I did on the live,
0: our tipsy live. I think they're just arguing between the two. It's just terminology. The state was arguing that the LEADS, and it's it's an acronym for the Illinois law enforcement agency's data system, which is like criminal histories of people, intelligence, kind of bulletins and stuff like that. And FOIA, we aren't we aren't allowed to get them or anything. Nobody else is allowed to get them. Jamie's argument was for a form that Bloomington Police Department. I would guess in-house, develop their own form when somebody comes walking in and says, I have information about a crime. Whoever takes that information, puts down the, you know, the date it come in, who it was, and then there's space to follow up on it. You know, It was assigned to Detective Smith. He went out and did this to it. And it's, and it's really a matter of terminology. Bloomington calls their form a crime information lead sheet. And that's the terminology that's kind of typed at the top of their form. And so the argument was between the two different people. They're just arguing over the terminology of of what forms they were.
1: I, I guess I thought it was interesting that that distinction was never addressed. It was almost as if the state was talking about one thing and Lauren was talking about the other. And that distinction, there was
0: never any clarification there. Well, nobody Which, clarified it, but like uh, like you said, Lauren, Lauren argued that I get lead sheets all the time. And I think the judge kind of interpreted, you know, what she was talking about and what the state was, was trying to argue about. And then
1: Rigdon went on to talk about how Jamie is constantly asking for new documents and and how the state has always complied with that.
3: He said it doesn't matter how many years or who represented him, like he, he won't stop.
1: Yeah, he's constantly asking for new materials and they never have any merit.
3: Yes, that was it. He said regardless of merit.
1: And that Haltera had had a lengthy review in, in his office over multiple days. And that's with the 8,000 documents. And what Rigdon is trying to throw in here is the work that Ray and I have done for the last 10 years, getting those FOIA documents. That's not them asking for new documents. That's not Jamie's defense asking for new documents. It's private citizens making FOIA requests, and then a lawsuit that resulted where they, where the judge in McLean County actually found them at fault for improperly redacting documents and not giving everything that they were supposed to, which we've gone over at length. You know, and then Rigdon said to that point, Leslie, no matter who's representing Jamie, He's continually asking for them. Well, it doesn't matter because his attorneys never got them.
3: The other thing he said, they've always been very responsive. He used that word. But how responsive was he during that first Zoom hearing where he showed up and he was like, I really don't know why we're even here today. Like, I had no idea this was even still a thing. (laughs) First of all, the state has
1: not been responsive because the state's attorney's office has always said We're not obligated to FOIA. So when we file FOIAs with, in fact, I recently went to file a FOIA with the state and it actually says when you click on FOIA from state's attorney's office, it has the case law where they're not obligated to FOIA. And there's no way to even submit a FOIA to the state's attorney's office anymore. You can't even try. So that argument is ridiculous because they. I don't think that they have asked for discovery. Ray, do you remember throughout this whole process of Jamie's attorney of Tara ever asking for new documents?
0: I I don't. No, I don't have any knowledge of her asking for a new discovery.
1: It just got dumped on us. Yeah, I mean on them. But because of the subpoena, I mean, that's how that came to light. Of course, we knew there was information in there from the FOIAs, but that
3: whole thing came to light.
0: With the subpoena for the forensics. Exactly. Exactly.
3: Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files patron team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout-out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button.
1: And then Rigdon went on to say that about the list, remember the 18 items that she was asking for or that Tara identified from going through? all of those. He even said that he didn't even know if the list was credible because he brought out, he focused on the lead sheets and then the grand jury transcripts. See, they've been turned over. See, they were turned over. I just thought that was really interesting. Yes, it does say in one of the, and I mentioned this previously. So when Tina Griffin was turning over discovery, she has to sign a document that is basically under oath that says, to the best of my knowledge, this is everything. And the grand jury transcripts are in there, which to me, it proves that Jamie didn't get all of the discovery in 2007, right? And that Lauren has never had it because those grand jury transcripts that we have we not turned over in discovery. And I just thought that, you know, that's an interesting point because that could come back and bite him because that just shows that he never got that. And then he just ended with the request was too broad and that it should be denied. And the judge comes back and asks Rigdon what he thinks isn't discoverable in the 8,000 pages. And that's when right. You that was when you that was when you could have heard a pin drop in that. Right. In that but line. he
3: phrases it as if you were the original trial attorney, what would be undiscoverable that you would have withheld from the original trial? The first thing
1: he says is, is, you know, what he what he thinks is discoverable in the eight thousand pages. And he couldn't say anything. He was standing up because he had just made his argument. And then he started like slowly flipping through these pages that he had. And I, I think you said uh, it was two minutes. I don't know why crazy, yes. crazy Leslie I was, timed it.
0: I was timing him.
3: <laughs> yeah, because it was like, you know, it was like, I don't know. You know me. I was like a pig in shit. So I was like just watching and then the- him. <laughs> And
1: then the judge tries to save him, right? He says, it's not your fault. This isn't Mr. Rigdon's fault because Rigdon never answered, He, you know, because it was just so quiet. And I think the judge was like, oh, OK, so this is not your fault. And then that's when he asked him again, if you were the original trial attorney, what isn't discoverable? And that's when he said, uh, Rigdon responded with "That you know, judge, I haven't analyzed every page, but... The lead sheets, I don't believe are discoverable. And, right? I mean, that was it. That was all he had. And you're thinking about all these 18 items that were.
3: We had um, a longtime listener comment about that to us. Ellen also know, and she said that in her opinion, when he was standing there, you know, deciding what he was going to say was if he answered that question and said what he thought was undiscoverable um, and what he would have withheld, he would have admitted that he knew the contents of what was in there. So perhaps he was more cognitively thinking that whole time and thinking, what am I going to say? Am I going to admit I know what was in there? And that you know later will come out that Brady ma- material was withheld. Am I going to be a part of this? or Because at one point in time when the judge was like, is this stuff that was known to be withheld in the beginning? He was like, All I can say is that it wasn't, some was provided, but I can't speak to the fact whether it was known or not. So he was in a really tight spot there. So I think that might've been, could it have been something that he really thought about and was like, wow. That's such an
1: interesting perspective. And I'm glad that Ellen brought that out because that's not something that I thought of. And then if you go back, as Bruce was saying, before we, before we even started recording, and that was mentioned. That question from the judge was excellent, right? Because there's no way for Rigdon to win that question. It
3: was a loaded, he, it was a loaded question.
1: Like you said, there's two things that can happen. He either looks like he didn't go through it at all. Or if he says this and this and this, then he's admitting that they've withheld evidence against him. So there was there was not a good answer for that question.
3: Right. And then he's got to decide, am I going to be party to this? Am I going to be associated with what happened, you know, when I was just a child and I've never even done anything to Jamie Snow? Like, what am I going to say right now?
2: Right. I thought it was a defining moment from what I've read. Obviously, you two are there, but. Uh, I think you covered it really well. I think the question was excellent from the judge, and I think it left the uh, state looking pretty foolish there because, like Leslie said, he's either, you said it as well, either ill-prepared or trying to cover it up.
3: You said it just like (laughs) in plain English right there, and that's what we're going for.
1: (laughs) The next question by the judge to the state's attorney was, was the language of the order agreed on by everyone? And then Rigdon says yes. And the judge kind of harped on this a little bit, um, just kind of nailing him down on it. He asked again, and the subpoena was never objected to. That was a really critical question, as we'll see when we come to the ruling. And the judge said, so the response was just a data dump. Like they just gave them everything, and I, when he said that Ray, I could not help but think if that's just the mo, uh, for McLean County because we have been data dumped seventy times with you know with FOIA stuff we'd ask for one thing and they'd send us everything so uh, that was kind of as Leslie likes to say vindication for me and I was just like I wish Ray was sitting here because I wish he could have heard that coming out of the judge's mouth. That was awesome.
3: So right before the recess, Lauren talked um, again and was able to rebut all of this stuff. And she came out swinging again. And she said that it was somewhat absurd that I can't get access to the documents that were used to convict him. And I cannot adequately represent him or do my due diligence without them. And so she really addressed that and brought it back that all of this was like so incredibly important and she didn't allow the judge or the room to get sidetracked by all these little tiny nonsensical logistical things you know these <laughs> these straws that Rigdon was hanging on to she kept bringing it right back around to remind everybody you know why we were here and then um, they went for recess at 2:18 p.m. and then when he announced that we were going he was going for recess we were all shocked because we knew that meant that a ruling was coming next. So we were, you know, really excited, really happy.
1: Yeah, that was, that was a really good time. Christine motioned me to come over during that, during that recess. And she grabbed me and she was whispering in my ear. And she said, because of the issue of the order, he's going to grant this. She was just like, just, I I really, really think he's going to grant this. And that really made me feel, that really made me feel really good. So when he came back in, and this is all ESCAPA, and this is his reasoning for granting the motion. He talked about how he reviewed the motion for discovery and that it was filed on August 13th. And then the state's response was on August 23rd. And that Butler's order was from March 30th, 2016 to the ISP and the BPD, and the first thing he comes out with was both counsel agreed that judge uh, has discretionary authority to order discovery in post-conviction proceedings, but the court has to find that there is good cause requirement by the defendant. Considering all the things presented in the petition, some of the things the court needs to look at are, one, The scope of the request, he says it was limited by the March 30, 2016 order, and there has been no argument, at least by the state, that the subpoena did not comply with the March 30, 2016 order. However, the response by the BPD and the ISP, he said the best way to put it is they simply just dumped everything they had in some PDFs and sent it to the court, which later sent it to the parties. And then he cited paragraph four of the order, which states any and all documents responsive to the items one and two above, which are the orders to ISP and BPD, shall be subject to any objections by the agencies from which the documents are requested he said, I note no objections. And I think Mr. Rigdon didn't note any objections in his file by either the ISP or BPD. In fact, they complied, or at least they thought they complied with the subpoena request. Did you want to say something, Leslie?
3: Perfect. No, you (laughs) You had that really good. Can't wait to hear the next three.
1: Okay, so the second thing he looked at was the length of time between the conviction and the post-conviction, and he said in this case, Mr. Snow was convicted on January 16th, 2001 to today's date, September 8th, 2021. It's been 20 years, seven months, and 24 days. I was like, wow. (laughs) Wow. I I couldn't tell Leslie if he was, it was almost biting.
3: In retrospect, now that we know the outcome, he was getting that on the record and making a point and validating that it has been so long. And I don't, I don't know if any other judge has, has done that. But when we heard it, we were like, is he trying to say that the length of time is so long that why, why is his attorneys now just bringing this up? Like we couldn't figure out which way it was going, but um, looking back, now we know why he did that.
1: The third thing he said the court needs to look at is the burden on the state. And he said, and looking at this factor, the court determines that's pretty low. It's 11 PDF files, which have already been scanned in, by the BPD and the ISP. And that's it. He did not expand on that one at all. And next, he said then the court must look at whether there's any availability through other sources. When questioned, Ms. Myerskoff indicated they have filed FOIA requests and they have received redacted documents, which were little or no help to the defense. And then number five, he said, when asked if the evidence was known at trial, we must look at the fact that one attorney is deceased, one attorney is no longer practicing law and has indicated that he does not have the files and that the many people that handled this case originally are no longer handling this case. Then he said, when asked whether it would help lead the defense to find evidence that tends to prove or disprove something at issue, I believe part of the 9,000 pages would lead to other discovery evidence. It would probably prove or disprove a lot of things for both the state and the defense. And he emphasized and I did it just like he did. And the defense is what he said. He went on to say, we look at the fact that the Illinois State Police and the BPD are state agents and no objections to the documents were filed. There's no indication that they contacted the state's attorney's office or proper objections filed with the court. Instead, they just dumped everything on the state. This isn't Mr. Rigdon's fault. I believe looking at this, I believe the question was asked to Mr. Rigdon, what if any of the documents, if you had in your possession as an attorney, would you not tender? He indicated lead sheets. I agree that lead sheets do create somewhat of an issue, but I'm not saying they are not discoverable. Simply, we could redact, social security numbers, and dates of births to help limit that. When looking at this to determine whether this is discoverable, I think justice would be necessary to tender. Therefore, I'm going to grant the defense motion subject to the redactions of the lead sheets. If there are any other items that need redactions, the state can motion it up and will determine whether that should be redacted as well. Specifically social security numbers and date of births. And everybody clapped. <laughs> well, we clapped no, before
3: that. <laughs> no, Tammy, Tammy started clapping, and I think you said something, and then everybody just started clapping. And the clapping, you can hear it in the video that was posted online by one of the court reporters. And it was it felt like it was forever. <laughs> but watching it back, I think it was like eight seconds of clapping but it was like really loud clapping
1: yeah so everybody stopped immediately you know the judge was kind of doing the you know he when everybody started clapping because when he said i grant this motion i think i went yeah and started clapping
3: yeah tammy's, <laughs> tammy's a rebel
1: <laughs> and then everybody was clapping and, and
3: then lauren hi. i gotta i gotta say Lauren
1: put her mama hand behind, you know, she's up there as soon as we started clapping, I saw that mama hand go out and everybody just stopped. And it was that, I mean, it was that, it was that quick, but everybody was so excited. I mean, how could you not?
3: Right. And then now since so talking to Jamie, he told me, he emailed me this really classy thank you email for coming in just told me how happy he was you know for me and everybody that I was able to be a part of it but um he had said Leslie if I could go back in time to any moment in the last 22 years and relive it I would pick where everybody clapped so <laughs> you guys really made his 22 years with That's that moment. amazing.
1: That's amazing.
3: Well thank you Tam for another thing that you got you know everybody on board to do for him that the clapping you know that you started it and you that was great because we don't um, do things without <laughs> we don't do things without permission like that so thanks for giving us the permission
1: <laughs> unless we do a live and then leslie does everything she can get away with
2: <laughs> was there any verbal instruction from the judge during the clapping or did he just kind of let it go
3: he let it go
1: he he let it go Uh, uh he did you know he raised his hands up like you know, like down.
3: To push the floor like, down, kind of. Yeah. But, but, he, was polite, his, but he was
2: very polite about it.
3: His face wasn't angry. I know he liked it.
1: <laughs> his face was not angry. And I don't, Bruce, have you had a chance to watch the
2: No, I did. The video? But I didn't. Okay. It's different when you're live. I mean, you can only see. You don't know if you're seeing everything in the little clip that was in the panograph. But it seemed to me like he just allowed it to happen.
1: More so, Lauren shut us down than him.
2: She's just being professional. That was a good move on her part too.
3: Oh, of course. I'm not saying that. that Oh yeah. No, I I know
2: what you're saying. I know you're. Yeah. I
3: mean, she had to, but she was like, these are my monkeys. Oh my God. Let me control them.
2: (laughs) She actually uh, did a group
1: picture with us. And, and, uh, before she did that group picture, she said, I didn't mean to be terrible when you were clapping. And I, I think Carl might have said that when people do that, in Cook County, they've seen arrests happen, you know, because it's just not something that's allowed. And it really does just depend on the judge. The judge has complete control over the courtroom. That's why
2: I think it might be, it may or may not be a little bit telling that the judge was so cooperative there and did not make a verbal statement at all about the, the applause. But that's, you know, there's a little speculation there, but it seems to me like he was okay with it.
3: Yeah, it was long overdue and it made its way into all the papers. So that was so special how the reporter said, and then the whole courtroom applauded. So it was It was
2: was great to see in the video. I can't imagine how much more elevated that was live, but it was still fantastic to see. Well, it made
3: everybody cry. That's when people started crying because it was like that was the the climax, you know. So
2: I think it's great too that they were able to get the video and release that to the public so that people can see that Jamie has this kind of support.
3: And that it's something worth applauding for. And, you know, it kind of gives people permission to get on board.
2: So this next hearing is November 10th. That's simply to go over the progress of the state. Do we have any more information on that?
1: No. And I haven't, uh, I haven't asked Lauren about that yet, but I will. I'm assuming that it's a status hearing, but they will have it on zoom and I was thinking about it I'm like okay so why do they need 60 days to email a uh, pdfs but he did say that part about redacting right the the socials and the birth dates so there's going to be that that has to occur and then also, what else
3: that he thought deserves exactly. to be redacted so
1: any any other objections that he might have he'll have to file a motion so it's going to depend on whether they want to drag this out or not. I, I guess that'll be a good indication how they come back if they're asking, well, they don't need this and they don't need this. But the great thing about this judge is they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to prove it this time.
3: What also is impressive is everybody who has been following Jamie's case and showing concern for him, um, the little community that we've built online, everybody who showed up. Impressive also was the news coverage, the local news, the articles in the newspaper. We're just very grateful for for everybody who's been on board, stayed on board, come on board, and everyone who's a volunteer to help and everybody's got to stay <laughs> and then get someone else to come along for the next hearing.
1: It's such a, a long road and uh, it's such a long fight and a lengthy fight again. We want to get as many people to show up at all of the hearings every, every, every time he has an appearance, because, you know, when that falls off because people get tired, we just need to think about how Jamie's been, Jamie's had this fight for 22 years now. And we need to be there for him and we need to be there to fight for him. And showing up is the most important thing that you can do. Uh, one of the most important things that you can do showing up is, is very important just so that county can see, you know, not just the judge, but the county can see that people are watching and they want to know too why you're not turning over 8,000 documents to a citizen of McLean County. So thank you all. We really, really appreciate it.
3: Uh, the last thing I wanted to point out was. When Jamie was on his way out of court and the judge gave him the opportunity to speak, took him like a little while to come up with what he was going to say. But it was so poignant and well-planned. And he said exactly the right thing. You know, he thanked the judge and just said, I I appreciate your ruling in this case. And all my friends and family and supporters, thank you for coming. I love you all. And that was it. You know, he didn't take the opportunity to be like, it's about time. Thanks for being on my side or he just was like very classy very he said the right things that he appreciated the ruling and told everybody he loved them and that's very powerful to read that in the paper now so for the people who had questions about Jamie were on the fence or wasn't sure if this was a tired case if he was ever going to get out or you know anything like that when they read that kind of stuff in the paper I think it has an impact and kind of will encourage them to consider Jamie again In this episode, we set sail on the USS Three Jim Snow to share our journey to victory while seated behind our captive in court. On September 8, 2021, the Exoneration Project successfully argued to Judge Scapa that the 8,000 missing documents are legally owed to Jamie's defense team, and the contents will assist in forensics testing, witness credibility, and Jamie's claims of innocence. It will take some time to process the documents, but we know this is the beginning of the end. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. This verdict was fair and a long time coming, but how does it relate to the handling of ballistics evidence 30 years ago? That's next time on Snow Files.